You're listening to a sermon from First Family Church from the series, The King is in the King, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, speaking of praising and thanking the Lord, <clears throat> this week's text is actually a psalm of thanksgiving. Did you know that? So interesting timing, wouldn't you say? So let's open to 2 Samuel 22, shall we? <clears throat> 2 Samuel 22, which is a psalm of David, you'll find it almost repeated verbatim in the book of Psalms, number 18. In Psalm 18, it's more of a hymn for public worship. But it's put in here in 2 Samuel because it's more of a personal thanksgiving at this point. And David writes this psalm, I believe towards the end of his life, and I'll show you from verse 51 why I believe that's true, as a way to look back at his life and, and awaken him, arouse him, bring him to a place of praise to his God. It's called David's Song of Deliverance. <clears throat> Most commentators will tell you that in this psalm, we see the true core of, De- of Israel's king. And I believe by that there's, some, there's more in play than just David. I think we begin to see who Israel's true king is. Because in this psalm, you're going to find it to be very personal, but it's going to all be vertical about our Lord. And I think David, in writing this psalm, highlights, though he was the physical king, he's highlighting who the true king is and who really brings about all of Israel's blessings and benefits, specifically deliverance. So what I want to do this week um, is I want to walk you through this psalm in a structural fashion first. Okay, You might want to have a pen ready, maybe you want to mark in your Bible. And then I want to kind of notice a few theological implications and then give you one last application. Between those two, uh, between two and three, I'll take a few questions. And you may have some as we notice this, I'll call it a psalm or a song kind of unfold before us. Okay, Here's my end game goal though. You ready? Here's the end game goal in this, that you will leave today with your heart more motivated to praise and worship God by your life and by your lips. That in your action and in your attitudes, you will see God is worthy to be praised. And I think you would admit that mentally right here. You'd say, Todd, we agree with that. You'd nod, right? You're in church after all, right? But sometimes when we leave, would you admit this, that that we don't live our life in response to all of God's greatness and goodness. We sometimes make it more about us than about Him. And I'm hoping today that as you see this song unfold at the end of David's life, you'll make it all about Him. Let's begin, shall we? Let me give you some structural things about this psalm of 51 verses. It is a song that highlights deliverance, but it's written in what we call a chiastic Form. What that means is it's, it's going um, to, in a poem or in a song, you have certain things that repeat themselves at different points in the, in the song or psalm. That's what this is. So there's some repetition happening, and we'll notice it. In fact, I want to teach this psalm in that fashion. So we're not going to read this from start to finish. I want to read it in the literary form it's written. Can we do that? So you may tonight, today go back home and say, I want to read this in one sitting. Do that. Maybe around the lunch table, the dinner table, and your personal devotions. 
And I think understanding the, the literary aspect of it, it will kind of make a little more sense possibly to you. So here's how it's structured, okay? Here's the chiastic form of this psalm. It goes A, B, C, B, A. That's what we mean by a chiastic structure. It kind of forms a, a pattern in which repetition brings home the point. Notice, first of all, verses 1 through 4, it's really about declaration. And this is matched by the end of the psalm, verses 47 through 50, in which both times you'll find similarities in which David declares God's greatness. Let's read these passages together, can we? We'll just leave this slide up right here, and we'll kind of walk through this psalm together, okay? Notice what he says in verse, uh, beginning in verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. He's my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. In this set of verses, three times he mentions God by name, as well as uses seven to eight metaphors to describe God, such as God, my refuge, my rock. These would be more of a, and I'll use this phrase, defensive metaphor, something we run to for shelter, the word refuge, uh, the idea of a stronghold. But then he uses maybe words that would describe more of an offensive metaphor, like the horn of my salvation, my shield. He's going into battle. So regardless of how you see the metaphors, David here is declaring God's worthiness. And he matches that as he closes the psalm. Look at verse 47. You'll see very similar phrases and very similar metaphors. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and be exalted and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me. Who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. So if you were to compare these two sets of verses, you'll notice in verse 4, he is saved from his enemies. Do you see that in verse 4? But in verse 49, he is delivered from what? Men of violence. So you can see some similarities, different words, but poetically he's exclaiming the same thing to begin the psalm and to end the psalm. You might could call these bookends to the psalm. In literary form, this is what a chiastic structure does. It starts and ends with the same theme. Look at verse 50. For this I will praise you. What does the word this refer to? It's deliverance. It's salvation. It's being saved from his enemies. It's being delivered from, uh, from those who opposed him. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the Nations, And I love that little three-word phrase there because David was not content for God's greatness to be, to be seen and heard only in Jerusalem, only within Israel. His heart was such as was God's heart that all the Gentile nations know. <clears throat> and so he said, I'll praise you among the nations, sing praises to your name. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this is how the psalm begins with two portions uh, excuse me, this is how it ends and begins, with a declaration of God's worthiness and, and goodness and greatness. He then moves to talking about this deliverance a little more. This is in verses 5 to 20, and then verses 34 to 46. Now, what I've done in my Bible, I have a picture for you today, but I've taken three different colors of ink. All you precept folks will love this, okay? But I've taken three different colors, and I've kind of bracketed off these three sections. So, 1 through 4, 
47 through 50 are all in one color, kind of circled and bracketed. And then 5 through 20 and 34 through 46 are all in a different color, but they're the same. Those two are the same, but different than the blue. And then the middle section we'll get to in a minute is in a different color because it'll show you the three parts of this chiastic psalm and kind of what David's point is. Here in these next two sections, he actually goes into great detail about the deliverance for which he praises God. Let's read some of these phrases, can we? Beginning in verse 5, For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shield entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. It's a serious situation, wouldn't you say, church? Here's what he did in response to 5 and 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. By the way, the word God and the word Lord there are the same ones mentioned in 1 through 4 multiple times. When he says, the Lord is my rock, God is my rock. He's now saying, this one who's my rock, my refuge, my stronghold, my horn of salvation, that's the one I called upon. Verse 7 says, from his temple he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. And then in verse 8, look at the next word, then. Notice how God responds, and this is mentioned, this is kind of described poetically. Admittedly, it's, it's, uh, it's an incredibly high praise section of scripture about God's response to our prayers. But make no mistake, what David is saying here is if God can do all of these things, he can surely handle my distress. Because you'll find that verses 8 through about 16 are far greater issues than David's singular distress. I mean, David is in the middle of the waves of death, the torrents of destruction. We're not to minimize that, but as you read 8 through 16, God's doing something bigger in those verses than just dealing with one person's waves of, of death and torrents of destruction. God is dealing with the entire universe, all the earth. And I think David's making this case, like, this is the God that I cried to. This is the God that heard me. He handles the entire earth, so surely he can handle my one situation. Let's read what he says here. Because God heard him. Because he cried, verse 8, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Say, Todd, when did these take place? Is he describing an actual earthquake? Is he describing actual physical phenomenon on the the planet? I think David is metaphorically here speaking of the times in which God ordained and allowed and used events to further his purpose. Like, for instance, when there was a famine for three years. That would be a time that David's thinking when the Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. When the Lord turned the counsel of one of those 
men who was close to him and caused Absalom to believe the wrong information. The Lord was thundering his voice. You can read back through much of, much of 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel and see how God was moving his people and accomplishing his will in spite of and even at times using the evil done by man. So truly he owns and uh, is in charge of more than just one situation or only what's good. God is the supreme sovereign owner of the earth. It's a beautiful section describing God's omnipotence and sovereignty. In verse 17, he begins to make this more personal, this deliverance he's talking about from this God who is so great. Look what he says in 17. He sent me from on high. He took me, excuse me, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out of He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Understand, church, if 8 through 16 is true, then it would make sense that David would call on God and know that God would rescue him because God can handle anything on the earth. He can utter his voice. He can speak loudly and clearly, authoritatively, sovereignly. So David calls on the only God who can do that, and he experiences that in 17 through 20. A couple of textual notes before we move on. In this section 8 through 20, there are about 20 divine pronouns. Namely, the word he. You ought to underline them each time they come along. The word he is just consistently in this passage. You'll find three names for God. Of course, they reference our Trinitarian God. You'll also find 12, what I I would call Davidic pronouns. Pronouns. In other words, times that David referenced himself. What am I saying by that? It's just a little observation to show you something. David really was saying here that his deliverance was all about God. All right? Now, we're going to see a shift in a little bit, and you may kind of catch you off guard. I'll get there in a second. But just notice in this first sentence, in this first section of deliverance, David is saying that he was delivered from something by only one person, God. And I think it's an important word here. This section of deliverance, compared to the next one, this one's more about what David's delivered from. It has a lot of sense of like, man, something bad is about to happen. I'm in the middle of of difficult situations. But God was faithful and delivered me from all of that. Because as you begin the next section of deliverance, which begins in about, what, 34? He's delivered to something. Let's read together, can we? Skip to 34 now. Here's the... The second of the chiastic section, so to speak, that matches the the other one. In verse 34, he says, He made my feet like the feet of a deer. He set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps. Under me, my feet did not slip. Do you see how suddenly he's exclaiming now? He's proclaiming what God has delivered him to. All these things are happening to him. The victory after and out of the violence. Verse 38, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. And you can even begin to catch some allusions to some of David's battles, can't you? Some of his situations with maybe his son, maybe his son's. 
his enemies. Of course, this psalm speaks not only of those immediate days, but also of his days with Saul. So don't be surprised if, as you're reading this song that he wrote into his life, you begin to hear, you know, many of the texts that we covered in the first and second Samuel. He says in verse 40, you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and destroyed, uh, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. Probably a definite reference there to, his, to the coup attempt with Absalom and his escape from Jerusalem, but how they brought him back. He says, people whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. So you see in the first section, it's David delivering, being delivered from something. Here in this last section, it's David being delivered to something. Now notice something here. This will be surprising to you. In this section, it switches. The pronoun use of switches. There are only 12 divine pronouns. Typically the word he. In this case, it will be the word you a lot, speaking of God. And there are 31 what I would call Davidic pronouns. Before, there were a lot of divine pronouns, and David referenced himself not a whole lot. Here, David talks a lot about himself, doesn't he? I did this and I did that, and yet he's saying that it was all caused by God. How God delivered him in verse 44. And so the result was David responding to God's work and experiencing victory. I think that's the best way to see these two deliverance passages. In the first one, David's delivered from something. His enemies and violence and death. Because of God's faithfulness and greatness. In response to that, David experiences victory. But David's mention here of all the ways in which God gave him victory does not mean that David is the source of what happened. David still clearly sees God as the one who's, who sourced, and you'll use the word fueled, caused all of this to happen. Every bit of David's deliverance, and I would say to you, every bit of David's response to God's deliverance was all God's doing. That's why throughout this, you find it very pronoun-driven. Here's what God did. Here's what I experienced. Here's how I responded. Here's what God did. Here's what happened to me. And so David is clearly saying God is driving every bit of this. And it's very personal. All the pronouns indicate David's writing this as a personal psalm of thanksgiving. So do you see it happening so far? There's declaration at the beginning and the end. Here's the God who is worthy and awesome and mighty. Here's why. Because he delivered me from something and to something. And then the middle of this psalm shows the reasons that God did that. Now I'm going to warn you, this is going to hit you odd at first reading. So prepare yourself. You're going to think, oh my goodness, how are we going to navigate through this portion of the text? Let's read it and see what David's doing. Here's the middle portion, surrounded by two kind of verses about deliverance and two great um, exclamations about God's praise. He comes to the middle part of the psalm and he gives us reasons for God's deliverance. Beginning in verse 21, watch this. 
The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. You're already getting nervous, aren't you? Like, boy, wait, 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 wait. I thought it was all what God did. I thought God was driving. I thought God was responsible. David responded. He experienced it. Was, it was God's doing, and he simply understood the victory. But now you're saying, Todd, I'm reading that it was based on, and, and according to his righteousness, what's happening here? Well, let's just keep reading. Let the text do its work. He's giving reasons for, the, for God's deliverance in his life. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. And you're thinking, man, David wasn't very clean. He murdered people. He was an adulterer. What does that mean, Todd? See, it's the tension's rising, isn't it? This is good Bible study. This is what you need to do. Like, I don't get this. Let's keep reading. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. Underline the phrase, ways of the Lord, would you? If you had a digital Bible, just make sure you highlight it. Or if you're taking notes, just write down verse 22. Because the word for there says, here's why God dealt with me according to my righteousness and the cleanness of my hands. For I've kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God for all his rules. Underline the word rules. Were before me. And from his statutes, I did not turn aside. Underline the word statutes. So far, you should have underlined three things. The ways of the Lord, his rules, and his statutes. In this section, it's going to be difficult to grasp. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness in his sight. With the merciful God, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. And the word of the Lord, underline that phrase, proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God, second time he now makes that statement, this God is my strong refuge and he has made my way blameless. What's going on in these verses where David seems to say it's because of how good I was that God did what he did? It's a great question you're wondering. This is a definite reference to the the Mosaic covenant that God gave in Deuteronomy 30, at least for the second time through Moses. I told you to underline the phrases, the ways of the Lord, his rules, his statutes, even down in verse uh, 31, the word of the Lord. When God gave the law to his people, it described a way to live with God that included blessings and cursings. It was re-given through Moses in Deuteronomy 30. You should read it. In which God said, I set before you today life and death. And in the Mosaic Covenant, which is why it's important to understand your covenants, in the Mosaic Covenant, it was not a salvific covenant. Nothing about that covenant with Israel was designed to show them how to be saved. It was to show them how to live their life. And so, in response to God's law, the people were to obey. They were to offer sacrifices. They were to uh, serve. They, they, uh, they were to help the needy and Be friendly to the alien, the foreigner. They were to uh, remember the Sabbath. There's all these ways in which they were to live their life. And in response to God's law, their obedience then, in turn, God would say, I will bless you. And when they departed from that, what did God do? He did 
I'll use the words in the Bible. He cursed them. He sent them to captivity. He had their enemies often destroy them. He would send famines to, to regain their attention. He would discipline them through many different means to bring them back to himself. This was how the Mosaic Covenant worked. It wasn't like the Abrahamic Covenant. It's not like the New Covenant. It was a covenant in which God gave laws to his people to say, live this way and this will happen. It's a very this-then covenant. All David is saying here is this. I obeyed the Mosaic Covenant and you kept your word. That's all he's saying. So if you look at it through the eyes of David's understanding of what he was operating under, the Mosaic Covenant, the laws given by God for how Israel was to live and operate, it begins to make a lot of sense, doesn't it? The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. In other words, I obeyed what the law said. I did what the Lord said. The cleanness of my hands, he's rewarded me. In other words, God did what he said he would do. So I think in this understanding, we see that God was still the faithful one. Most commentators believe that David here does refer to uh, his repentance in certain aspects. As in verse 26. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. The purified, you save a humble people in verse 28. Many believe David here is referencing those times when he was, uh, when he did walk away from the Lord. He disobeyed God's commands and yet he repented later. Nathan came to him and confronted him and he repented. So you say, well, how does that work then? It's still God being faithful to his covenant promise. That if you will obey me, I will take care of you. Now, I think that's still hard to grapple with, I, I admit. But now when we begin to see what's happening here, we begin to see, oh. So, so David is declaring God to be great on the front and back end of this song. He describes next how God did that. He controls the whole earth, delivered David from something, and he delivered David to something, a, a place of victory. And why did God do that? In the very middle, because God is faithful to his covenant promise and his covenant name. You see, when you understand the psalm that way, when you see the song breaking out, like, oh, David is really extolling God's faithfulness to be the deliverer he said he would be, then verse 51 really begins to make even more sense. That's why I think 51 is more of a postscript to the whole psalm. In fact, I would say the first two words describe all of the idea of deliverance in the whole passage. Great salvation he brings. Isn't that good? When you read what he was delivered from, what he's delivered to, his enemies, the violent men, David sums it up by saying this, God brings great salvation to his king. And he shows steadfast love. Remember the words we looked at several times in 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel? It's um, the word for God's covenant love to his people that will never change no matter what they do or don't do. And David here again is proclaiming it is really God that brings salvation. It's because of his steadfast covenant love to his anointed. And then watch this next phrase, to David and his offspring forever. So for David to write this in his closing song, this had to be towards the end of his life because the Davidic covenant wasn't given by God to David till near the end of his life. So I believe this comes after 2 Samuel 7. God shares with David that in spite of all he's done, good and bad, and though he couldn't build the temple, he was going to give him something greater than an actual physical structure. He's going to give him a name, a dynasty. 
that would last forever. Here David says, while only God could do that in response to the covenant he made, and me and my offspring will last forever, he says. That's why I think verse 1 through 7 of 23, I think kind of continue the thought of the covenant God made. I won't read through all of these except to show you one verse. Look at verse 5. I think it's interesting how the author here inserts this last uh, song of David, these last words of David, after his Thanksgiving song because it continues the theme of a covenant that God made. Look how he says in verse 5, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? See, that goes right along with verse 51, doesn't it? It is God's steadfast love. It is he who brings salvation to his king and his anointed one. And this will last forever. I mean, when, you, when you see the psalm lining up this way, and you begin to understand really what's happened textually and literarily in its structure, you begin to see, okay, this is really David declaring God's greatness for his deliverance, which was in response to his covenant-keeping name and character. That's the God David's describing, a God who will never break his promise and who will deliver his people and keep his word. Now, let me show you something even uh, prophetically interesting. Look at verse 51 with me, would you? There are two things mentioned there in verse 51. The word king and then the word anointed, correct? Do you see those? This is a very similar phrase to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In fact, let me show you a verse that would be... Now, let me just show you this verse. This is 1 Samuel 2.10. You'll want to make a reference in your Bible by this. It'd be a long way to draw an arrow, so you might not could do it over multiple pages. But here's 1 Samuel 2.10. And notice how the words are in the same order, and they're the same words. I'm going to show you how, what's going on here, I think. Hannah said this when God delivered her and answered her prayer. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I think prophetically, Hannah was was confident God would bring about a king one day. At this point, there were only prophets. But she was confident God would bring about a king. So I think she was probably not thinking of David's name, but thinking of physical king. But David took perhaps the very same words, the very same idea. And through the inspiration of the Spirit, he is actually mentioning and thinking of someone greater than he is. Hannah had been thinking of a physical king, but David's thinking about the one who will take his throne forever, Christ. And we've seen from Acts that David somehow through the Holy Spirit did know he was speaking of a future Messiah. This word anointed is the word Messiah. In fact, 1 Samuel 2.10 is the first time in the Bible that the word Messiah is mentioned. So you see what's happening here? I think in, in so many ways you see the narrative play out. God is saying and showing, I'm going to bring to you a king who will save you physically and nationally, but he will only point to a king who will save you spiritually and eternally. That's what's going on. And in David's psalm here, he extols and thanks God and praises God for exactly that. And why does God do that, church? Well, God delivered David, first of all, in response to the Mosaic Covenant. He kept his word, was faithful. 
But he also delivered David because he kept the Davidic covenant. In any case, you begin to see it is God's faithfulness. It is God's word that is kept. And yes, David responds to it. David experiences victory. David benefits from that. But in no way is David driving any of this. David's not the source of this. It is all God. That's why in this psalm, there are so many what I call divine or vertical pronouns. David's all about extolling and praising God. And in return, he responds and conducts himself differently. So let's notice a couple of theological implications from this. I've mentioned them already, so we won't go into great detail. I just want to kind of make sure you kind of, that's a lot to take in, a lot of information, almost like a Bible study course for a bit. It's good for us, so enjoy it. But there's a couple of three themes you ought to see happening out of this psalm. Let me give them to you. The theological implications are that, that David is aware that covenant, character, and conduct are all themes woven through here. And he's bringing all of them to the surface in lots of ways. He's bringing God's character to the surface, isn't he? 8 through 16, about God's character and holiness and his authority and sovereignty. Even in the part about the Mosaic Covenant, it's God's faithfulness and promise-keeping ability, his unchangeableness. When God hears David's prayer, his responsiveness, his mercy. Throughout this psalm, you begin to see that God's character is, is foundational to what's happening. But you also see that God's covenants are foundational. That he does respond to and keep his word based on what he said in Deuteronomy 30. That when they obeyed, God took care of them. But you also see the idea of conduct. That God's character and God's covenants affected not only God's conduct. He kept his word. It affected David's conduct. So as you're reading this later, from start to finish. I wouldn't read it in the order. I taught it to you, okay? But as you read it straight, start to finish, notice those themes. God's character, why things are the way they are, why he operates as he does. It's because of who he is. I need to insert this here and just make sure you understand. When you read verses like how God brought calamity, how he took out the enemies, those can be hard to digest, but I would remind you, because of who God is, Because his character is just, God can do no unjust thing. Are these hard to read and hard to grasp? They are. I've had long conversations with skeptics, agnostics, about these very things. And often they end just in the willingness to agree that we disagree. Here's what we won't ever compromise on. That though these can be hard to explain hard to sometimes digest in our culture, we cannot go back on and say, well, I think God had a momentary lapse in character there. (laughs) No, because God is just, God is faithful, God is holy, then everything he does is holy, just, faithful, right, and true. Do we always understand it in the moment? No. It's very similar, and you've heard this before, to looking at a beautiful tapestry. But all we see right now is the backside of that. And it looks like a jumbled mess of threads, doesn't it? But there'll be a day we'll see the front side of that. And all of God's plans will suddenly begin to make sense as he brings someone from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue to his throne. And Jesus Christ receives glory to the glory of God the Father. When all of that plays out, then suddenly the tapestry makes perfect and beautiful sense. Till then, we probably see a bunch of threads that we're not sure how they're working together. But we at no point do we 
uh, malign God's character or step away from believing he is who he says he is because who he is is then how he acts. And he is holy and just and righteous. And so he only does things that are that way. You'll see the theme of covenant and conduct woven all through here. So as you read this psalm, remember, keep those themes in mind. Here's how I'd connect them all in a single sentence. I'll just kind of give you the take-home truth here briefly. I would say as I read this psalm of thanksgiving, very personal, whereas the one in Psalm 18, almost verbatim, is more public, here's this personal song that David writes. He's saying this, it is God's character and covenant that bring about deliverance for God's people. And declaring this in word and action is our rightful response. I mean, the whole psalm is David's response to God's actions, correct? But in this psalm, though he does say God kept his word to me and I experienced the victory, he never once takes credit for any of this. It is God's character and covenant driving every single bit of it. In fact, let me put a little more meat to this take-home truth, can I? Here's how I would word it if I wanted to kind of bring out the themes that we saw in this chapter. It is God's character and covenant that bring about deliverance. That's God's conduct, right? Because of what he said, this is how he acts. He promised this in Deuteronomy 30. He promised this in 2 Samuel 7. So God will do it. So his character and covenant affect his conduct. But watch this. And declaring this in word and action, that's our conduct, isn't it? That's our response. So as you see the themes of character, covenant, and conduct come through in this psalm, it's not just God's conduct we're looking at. We're seeing our conduct surface as well, that we should respond to God's covenants and character with praise, proclamation, declaration that God is great. Let me see if you have a few questions. We'll leave the take-home truth up there for a moment. I don't know if we do or not. We may not. We have two. That's, that's good. Okay. Let's take a shot at these, can we? And then I want to give you one last applicational equation before you leave. Is the Mosaic Covenant still operational in the lives of believers? No. Christ fulfilled every bit of the Mosaic Covenant, and so it has now been completed. The New Testament says that Christ came not to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. And so all the law was fulfilled in Christ. In fact, he is known as our Sabbath. Did you know that? The Bible calls Jesus our rest. So he fulfills that commandment. And so you begin to understand how the New Testament unfolds. You begin to see that Christ is the complete fulfillment of everything God required and expected. Christ did it perfectly. So we are now, as believers, if we're in Christ, God sees us in the same way as fulfilling his expectations. That's why, watch this. Man, this is a great question. Thank you, whoever sent this in. I'm on a launching pad right now. This is awesome, you know. That's why we don't gather and encourage you to do something. We don't gather and say, here's the newest list from the divine. We proclaim good news that Christ has actually completed God's list. So just believe. Trust Christ. It's the only, and I use the word religion here in the right sense. It's the only system of beliefs. It's the only religion in which we don't do anything except depend on the one who did everything. Every other religion says, do something. They bring you a list. We bring good news. It's been done. Amen, church? 
So the old Mosaic covenant has been fulfilled, completed. There is still a concept, though, that as we obey and as we um, live our lives, that are, it's, it's pleasing to the Lord. And so I can't get into that all now. Just understand, that's not a, a part of the Mosaic covenant that's still lingering. That's just a concept in the New Testament that says, you know, as God's children, he's our father. He's completely satisfied in his wrath against our sin. But there are ways we can please him. His love for us doesn't change. He doesn't wake up mad at us one day. That's not what's going on. But there are ways our obedience shows that we love him and he's pleased by that, okay? That's just a very small teaser for maybe more on that later. But to answer the question, it is not an operation in the lives of believers. No, Christ fulfilled it all. Amen. Because, man, I'd be toast, wouldn't you? You would be, trust me. Nobody in this room, nobody in this room would have a single ounce of hope if it depended on how well you could obey the Mosaic law. I've broken them. You have too. So we deserve the penalty of that law because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. No wonder David would say he wants to proclaim this among the nations. And I trust that this church and that your life, that we want everyone to hear that good news. Can we stay on that question a little longer? I love that question. That's a great question. Let's move on to number two, can we? Were murder and adultery not prohibited by the Mosaic Covenant? How can David's claims of righteousness ignore these violations of the Ten Commandments? Good question. It's due to the word repentance. So even in the Mosaic Covenant, there were avenues and ways to experience God's forgiveness when you did violate them. That's what Leviticus is all about, by the way. The system of sacrifices. We have a great series on Leviticus you ought to go listen to, right, church? About eight or nine years ago, I didn't get too many amens there, did we? <laughs> there were five sacrifices. Two of those were, uh, one of those were the guilt offering. There's the sin offering. There's the burn offering. Those were all the different offerings in place for these kinds of moments. So I won't go into all that here, but that's the answer to the question is, in repentance and sacrifice, David found restoration, which is why... Several times in the Samuels, you'll see David saying, and he rehearses this in the Psalms, he'll say, it wasn't just a sacrifice you wanted. It was a broken and contrite heart. So David said what God's looking for is repentance of the heart and then an outward expression of that and a sacrifice. David did those in those moments where he sinned, such as with murder and adultery. It doesn't excuse his sins. It magnifies God's forgiveness. Now, when we want to be hard on David, let's just remember When he broke the Mosaic law, it's the same way that you, if that were simply, that you would break it when you lie. Aren't you glad God forgave your lie? Aren't you glad God forgave your covetousness? Aren't you glad God forgave your lust? So I know it's hard to read these narratives and see this and think, man, he really blew that. Well, who hasn't? So again, we come back to this thing where Suddenly, in all the narratives, in all of the thanksgiving, what David's saying here is true. It's really God driving every bit of our deliverance. It's all about God. And yes, we respond to that, and we experience the victory he brings. 
So in some sense, we, we're kind of part of this, but we're not fueling any of it. It is all God's character and covenant. His innate, inherent, holy ability to keep his word in spite of us. Glory to God. Let me close with one applicational equation. Because I think this is one of the ways I, I, I see this psalm playing out. David talks about, uh, you'll see it in verse, uh, what is it, 30, excuse me, 29, 30 in those areas. He can leap over a wall. He can run through a troop. There's a lot of things David says here that enemies came cringing to him. Foreigners uh, came and they were trembling. Those who, against him, those who were against him sunk. I mean, there's a lot of things here that David experienced and said he did. But it's in response to what God either was, could do, or would do. And I've been to think about that and meditate on that this past week or so. Is that the way I live my life? Do I determine my actions based on God's character and covenants or based on me? And this is what I told you at the beginning. This is why I think when, we, when you leave today, I hope it's not really about you and what you can do because if it were, you wouldn't try or strive or pursue much of anything. But when it's about what God is or who God is and what God can do and what God will do, then our to-do list looks a whole lot different. Amen? See, we'll become much more generous when we know that God will supply all of our needs based on his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. We'll pursue God's righteousness when we know that if we seek that first, then all these things will be added to us. We'll seek reconciliation when we know that God exalts the humble. We start realizing, why wow, it's really all about who God is and what God can do and what God will do. Oh, I get it. Then that should determine what I do. So here's the equation I want you to fill in. Because God is, or you could say because God can, or because God will. Pick the word. I must, and you fill in the blank. Worship. Serve. Speak. Give, share, go, send, pray, trust. All of those actions, they're not rooted in your or my ability or even ours collectively. Each of those are rooted and fueled and motivated by one thing, who God is and what he's promised. Case in point, and I'll be done. Why do we go to the nations? Why do we ask you to go across the street? Why do we ask you to develop friendships with people that you know are lost? We call them yet to be believers, amen? Why do we ask you to intentionally involve yourself in places and environments? Where the gospel's needed, whether it's here locally or far away. Why? Because God has promised. Church, listen very carefully. God has promised to bring to his throne someone from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. If you don't believe that, you won't have zeal for evangelism. You will not have zeal for missions. You'll have frustration, irritation, because you, will not, you couldn't get that job done. 
But when you realize that God is actually using us in accomplishing his purpose, that he will do this, then suddenly we must go. It's the ordained means by which God will accomplish his purpose. And you could insert any activity or habit in there. But I want to exhort you as your pastor, base your to-do list not on your ability, but on God's character and covenant. And when that forms how you'll live, man, the courage of the church to live distinctly, differently, strategically, missionally, will rise to heights we've never known because we're depending on God who will not break his promise. So do this for me this morning. The band's going to come out. They're going to join me. Will you reach in front of you and take that feedback card? There should be one right in front of you on the chair or the back of that chair in front of you. And would you finish this equation for me this morning? You'll have all of communion to think about it. You've had all of this message to think about it. And from my experience, the Holy Spirit's been working even well before this, amen, pressing on your heart, kind of opening corners that you've been trying to hide, massaging areas to make them a little more soft and pliable. How would you finish this applicational equation? I think David's was this, because God is my deliverer, I will extol him among the nations. I'll praise him, I'll declare him. What is yours? Maybe it is that, that you're, you're committing to a life of worship. No more standing there like this, looking at your watch. Great is our God, you know, whatever. He's our rock, and he's our fortress. Maybe you'll say, you know what, I need to break out of that terrible habit. I'm not saying there's a certain posture you've got to adopt, but I'm saying there's a certain heart posture that should envelop you. Maybe that's what you're saying. I too will declare God and worship him. Maybe it's a trust or a give or a serve or a share or a go or a sin. I don't know. But could everyone here this morning, in light of Psalm 18, which is actually now inserted and used in 2 Samuel 22, would you say, Todd, here's how I'd finish that equation that comes out of this psalm. Here's how God's character and covenants, here's how God's person and promise will affect my life. It won't be about me and what I can get done. It'll be about God. And I'll trust him as I move forward in my obedience. Let's pray, can we?